0: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Many large corporations dedicate huge budgets to their image, selling the story they want the public to buy. Fossil fuel companies are some of the biggest spenders.
1: When you actually peel back uh, the glossy advertisements and messaging from the industry, the real numbers show that um, practically they're spending more on burnishing their image than they actually are changing their business plans.
0: But while major firms like Consultancy McKinsey & Company are unlikely to stop working with big emitters, more can be done.
2: No one's saying that McKinsey shouldn't work with these companies. What we're saying is, and what what the McKinsey employees were saying is that McKinsey should work to reduce the carbon emissions from these companies.
0: The firm's pushing fossil fuels falsehoods, up next on Climate One. For years, fossil fuel companies have claimed to support climate science and public policy advancing decarbonization. Many have recently pledged to hit net zero emissions by mid-century. Yet behind the scenes, they fight those very same policies through industry associations, shadow groups, and lobbying, all while spending vast sums on advertising and PR campaigns touting their clean energy commitments. This week, we're looking at some of the entities that help these companies slow the transition away from fossil fuels, starting with consultants and public relations firms. Many of these groups are now facing their own pressure to drop their fossil fuel clients. A new book profiling the power and influence of consulting firm McKinsey & Company has drawn attention to their work helping maximize efficiency and profits for fossil fuel companies and other large emitters. New York Times investigative reporter Michael Forsyth, co-author of the book When McKinsey Comes to Town, spoke with Climate One's Ariana Brocious.
3: Let's start by talking about the power of this consultancy firm. It's mostly hidden and yet incredibly pervasive. You write, the firm has advised virtually every pharmaceutical company and their government regulators, along with health insurers, airlines, universities, museums, weapon makers, private equity firms, and so on. It operates in more than 65 countries. As you were reporting this, what surprised you about the extent of McKinsey's influence?
2: I think that thing that surprised me the most was the pervasiveness of it. Uh, there's plenty of powerful com- companies in the world. You know, ExxonMobil, you know, for example, Amazon, Google. These are all huge companies that affect the lives of almost everybody, uh, especially in the United States, but around the world. But McKinsey works with almost all the companies. In the world and has influence on almost all the major companies in the world and many of the governments and you know we wouldn't have written the book unless we thought that the, the advice that mckinsey gave actually made a difference
3: right and and maybe that the public needs to be more aware of their influence absolutely so unlike some other companies mckinsey often advises companies that are actively in opposition or regulators and those they regulate simultaneously They say internal firewalls protect each client's interest. How real or effective do you think those firewalls really are?
2: So, yes, that is the mantra that, you know, McKinsey has long worked for many companies in the same industry field. like for example, working for Allstate or State Farm at the same time, they say they have firewalls. Certain consultants can't work for two different companies in the same field. But we've seen, especially in recently, some documents coming out, especially in the pharmaceutical area, where there was one senior consultant who was working for two opioid makers at the same time. And we also found that some of the consultants working uh, for these opioid makers, like Purdue Pharma, We're also working on projects for the FDA, the regulator of these drug makers.
3: That's pretty staggering. I don't know. It seems like that should be disclosed, right?
2: It's something that Congress is certainly taking a look at. I think a lot of people in Congress, and there were hearings on this uh, in April, actually, uh, are also very concerned that McKinsey is advising uh, companies that are regulated and the regulator as well.
3: So McKinsey markets itself to young Ivy League grads as a values-driven place to work, where they can play a role in changing the world for good. Yet many of those that you spoke to for this book had a different experience actually working there, and I was hoping you could tell us about the story of Eric Edstrom
2: sure so Eric is actually not an Ivy League graduate uh, he's a West Point graduate and uh, and then he went to Oxford I guess the the British Ivy League equivalent uh, to get a master's and he focused on um, and, and the environment and 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 climate uh, you know while getting his master's at, at Oxford and you know he is one of the many highly idealistic uh, people that McKinsey has recruited and McKinsey's very successful in recruiting some of these people because they really do appeal to their idealism you know don't go work for Goldman Sachs or some, you know, other bank, you know, at McKinsey, you can make a difference, you can make an impact on the world. And often in that recruiting process, they focus on some of the things like climate change, uh, like, you know, spreading vaccines, you know, against polio in Africa. These really good projects uh, that, that really do make a difference in the world. Um, the thing is, when they start working at McKinsey, uh, some of those people are quickly disabused of that because they're working uh, not for those companies.
3: You write about how there's sort of a culture internally of needing to be active and kind of in the game, right? And so If a new hire decides they don't want to work on something because of values-driven judgment, then they're kind of benched and they might miss the opportunity to actually prove themselves and then have a position, right?
2: That's right. So McKinsey does have this policy and they do honor it um, of allowing uh, people to opt out of certain types of work, like working uh, for a coal mining company uh, or a tobacco maker or an opioid maker, for example. The problem we found with that is that puts the um, ethical dilemma and the ethical choice on very young consultants, you know, these 25, 26 year old people. Uh, and so they're the ones that have to make the ethical choice, not the company itself. And so we found that McKinsey only stopped advising tobacco makers last year in 2021, which is, I think that's absolutely nuts. That's 57 years after the Surgeon General said that. Smoking causes cancer. 57 years, you know. And and for Eric, you know, he's in Australia. That's where he was hired uh, by McKinsey. He was working in the Melbourne office. That is the city in Australia that is also the headquarters uh, for some of the big resources companies like Rio Tinto. I think BHP is also there. Coal mining is, is a big industry and uh that's something he opted out of and you know some other people and that does deny them a chance uh to work with uh, certain partners you know that may advance their careers and when they uh don't have an assignment to work on it's called being put on the beach that's what it's called in the internal McKinsey parlance you know you don't have an assignment and if you you know opt yourself out of those some of these assignments and especially there's so much of that work in australia it it, it could really crimp and uh Hurt your McKinsey career?
3: So, McKinsey publicly advocates for climate action and they publish clear eyed analyses on the risks faced by the climate crisis. The McKinsey cost curves are a seminal piece of work in decarbonizing the global economy. But you report that today the firm's recommendations tend toward feel good market actions rather than government policy. Why is that?
2: Yeah, so I think McKinsey has done a lot of good work in the climate field, and you mentioned the climate cost curves. I think they came out in two thousand seven. That was new um, and uh, used by many people. And also, McKinsey, you know, does play to its strengths uh, for some of its best climate work, which is the ability to synthesize, you know, data and present it in a in a a way that is understandable. Um, And and they've done that. They're very clear-eyed. A certain part of McKinsey is very Clear-eyed about the dangers and and the and the, the problems and the the crisis you know that's caused by uh, you know increasing um, uh, carbon emissions. Um, that's one part of McKinsey. The other part, the part that really makes the money, is its extensive work uh, with the biggest carbon emitters of the world. And if they were working with those companies to reduce their carbon footprints, well, then all of the power to McKinsey. Um, but um, we discovered that a lot of the work that McKinsey does with these companies is, has nothing to do with making them greener.
3: Right. They work to make coal companies more profitable and actually extend the life of fossil fuels or our, our, our continued dependence on them.
2: That's right. And that's something that really upset Eric Edstrom. Again, you know, Eric is, uh, he's an American West Point graduate. He, he fought in Afghanistan, um, you know, as a, as a platoon leader, as a, as a young junior officer. Um, he's a man of strong ideals. And he just saw in Australia that McKinsey was promoting this success story um you know turning a coal mine into a diamond you know where a mckinsey team went in and increased production at a coal mining company by 26% and this was viewed as a good thing it's akin to you know we went into philip morris and you know we found a way for them to increase tobacco consumption by 26% we got more people smoking bravo us you know it's the same thing and the idea that um The company thought that this was something laudatory, that they passed around as an attaboy, um, really incensed uh, Eric. And uh, he wrote the mother of all farewell letters when he did leave the company in July of 2019, uh, where he mentioned this uh, particular note um, uh, about this coal mine increase.
3: Well, and that that conflict of you know, on the one hand, producing really useful data and analyses about the climate crisis and the risks faced by organizations, and on the other hand, actually helping these big fossil fuel companies continue to grow or develop you mentioned that there's, you know, a real profit incentive here, and that some of these companies are the most profitable. So, what's the business case for hiring your firm to cut emissions? And is there any of that activity happening?
2: Yeah, there, there certainly is. You know, and McKinsey pointed out, uh, you know, in their responses to us that they have worked with, uh, you know, uh, fossil fuel companies to help reduce their emissions. They said in one case they helped an energy company cut their emissions by eighty-two percent, which is pretty darn good. Um, but the big clients the really big clients, um, the ones with the deep pockets, the Chevrons, ExxonMobiles of the world, um, they may not necessarily be interested in that kind of work. And certainly we had a look at uh, we had a, just an amazing leak, I guess you would call it, where we got a chance to look at McKinsey's biggest clients, Chevrons among them, also the kind of work McKinsey was doing for them. And it's certainly nothing on the Chevron list uh, Gave any indication that it was a carbon re- reduction. It was all about uh, increasing efficiency. Um, you know, analyzing you know upstream oil production, uh, digitizing things, that kind of work. Uh, and uh, you know, so the the work done with some of these big companies really, in many cases, uh, has everything to do with them being able to be more efficient. And by say, I say efficient, I mean cost efficient producers of carbon. Uh, whether it's oil, natural gas, or coal.
3: So when pressed by a group of young McKinsey employees to take real action on climate and push their clients to do the same, senior executives said they couldn't stop working with their fossil fuel clients and remain relevant, citing the need to stay in relationship with clients in order to influence them. And this echoes the defense given by the head of PR firm Edelman in response to similar pressure from their employees. So based on what you were able to find does this kind of constructive engagement with clients work that that McKinsey's arguing for
2: yeah so in many instances with McKinsey um the pressure from within uh from consultants does seem to have some sort of effect uh this was certainly the case uh you know with when a lot of um uh, junior consultants especially were upset about its work with ICE, um, the the Immigration Customs Enforcement Agency. Um, with climate, it's kind of like Pharaoh's heart has hardened. So just to give you an idea of the extent of McKinsey's work. So in the past few years, McKinsey's worked with 43 of the top 100 carbon emitters in the world, you know, and those companies, those 43 companies in 2018 were responsible for 36% of the planet's carbon output. So McKinsey works with the big boys. And so this is this this is a lot of revenue for McKinsey. So the argument that McKinsey had is, and I just want to read it to you because I, I find it extraordinary. I'm just going to look at the, read the chapter here because, um, so this is these are words actually from the current managing partner of McKinsey, a guy named Bob Sternfels. He lives in San Francisco or in the Bay Area. Um, went to Stanford. It was a Rhodes Scholar. So Bob Sternfels. Um, kind of gave a pre-buttal to an article we wrote um, in October of 2021 uh, for the New York Times. Uh, They knew the article was coming, so he decided, I mean, McKinsey decided to do a pre-buttal in the Wall Street Journal in their editorial page. And he said, companies can't go from brown to green without getting a little dirty. And if that means some mud gets thrown at McKinsey, so be it. Coming from a Rhodes Scholar, I have to say, That was a kind of unusual argument. You know, no one's saying that McKinsey shouldn't work with these companies. What we're saying is, and what, what the McKinsey employees were saying is that uh, McKinsey should work to reduce the carbon emissions from these companies. In this instance, even though 1,100 McKinsey uh, consultants, uh, you know, McKinsey employees signed this uh, petition to get McKinsey to focus more on reducing carbon uh, emissions from its big clients and actually publicizing the emissions of its clients and letting people know, um, certainly the, the pushback was strong.
3: And you sort of touched on this, but if they took a stance of wanting to prioritize carbon reductions with those relationships with these long term clients, these big oil majors, what kind of positive influence could they have?
2: So, one of the strengths of McKinsey is that it communicates um, best practices, industry best practices. And so, uh, you know, one of the advantages of McKinsey working with competitors in the same industry is that they learn a lot basically the company is a knowledge company in a lot of ways. Um, and so, you know, while it can't take the, you know, trade secrets of total and BP and give them to Chevron, it certainly can anonymize, you know, some of the lessons that it's learned and, and pass them on to Chevron or ExxonMobil. The big problem here though, is that, um, McKinsey is hired by these companies. McKinsey works for them, does what the client wants them to do. And if these clients aren't asking them to help them reduce their carbon footprint, then McKinsey's not going to be doing that kind of work with them. And, you know, I I mean you see a lot of ads on tv about like algae you know that chevron is growing i've seen them for years and years i think they've gotten more mileage out of their algae ads you know um then you know the money they've actually put into algae research but uh uh y- you know it doesn't strike me that chevron and exxon Mobil and some of the big uh, us oil majors you know are that committed you know you have companies in europe uh, oil companies in Europe that are actually cutting their dividend payments uh, in order to transition quickly, more quickly to um, you know uh, car- a carbon-free future.
3: Yeah, the, those algae ads are classic case of greenwashing. Yeah, the amount of money being invested in that versus their overall operations is insignificant, to say the least.
2: Right, right. And ExxonMobil, same thing with their uh, carbon capture and storage that they've been talking about for over a decade now. They keep talking about it and talking and talking and talking.
3: So how has McKinsey senior leadership responded to these apparent contradictions between their values and their actions that you cover in the book, and, and particularly these climate aspects?
2: Yeah. So, so as I said, you know, with climate, um, I think they've pushed back quite strongly because of uh, the revenue. You know, I, I would surmise it's because of the importance of these, these uh, energy companies, you know. Um. With the other issues, though, you know, over the last few years that my colleague Walt Bogdanich and I have been writing about McKinsey, um, they have changed a little bit um, the way they select clients. A little bit more careful. I think a new systems and processes in place to make sure that they don't work with uh, authoritarian countries or at least with the uh, you know the police um, or defense ministries or justice ministries in authoritarian countries. So they have made some kind of changes. Um, you know, and, and they have for climate, they have launched, you know, some new initiatives to focus on this area. But as far as we know, the most important thing, which is uh, to be working on carbon reductions, you know, for its big carbon emitter clients, that really hasn't changed, and and they are still doing the work that Aramco Chevron and Exxon want
3: them to work on. How did your thoughts about capitalism evolve over the course of writing this book?
2: Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in free markets, you know, um, and, and the power of free markets to, to present innovation. But I do think that with capitalism must come some responsibility, and it's the responsibility of a free press and also the government to keep capitalism in check. And, and, the, and that's the thing about McKinsey. So many McKinsey consultants, especially former consultants, have said that McKinsey's work is often an accelerant you know it adds fuel to the fire whether it's turbocharging opioid sales you know it's it's focused on shareholder value it's focused on whatever the client wants and whatever the client wants is usually to increase their profits this has been mckinsey's work they they really have uh profited off the rise of shareholder capitalism
3: Mike Forsyth is a reporter on the investigations team at the New York Times and co author of the book When McKinsey Comes to Town. Mike, thanks so much for joining us on Climate One.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Coming up, a former PR executive on the greenwashing from fossil fuel clients.
4: There are advertising ideas that they're far more socially and environmentally responsible than they are in reality, Um, ideas that we can't live without them, that it's dangerous to imagine a future free from fossil fuels, and ideas that just generally confuse people about climate change and what the real solutions are.
0: That's up next.
3: Hi, Climate One listeners. We're working on an upcoming show about climate migration and wanna know if you've moved within the US for climate reasons, maybe to a new place with a better climate outlook, or maybe you're concerned about a move you made for other reasons like family or a new job that took you to a place with more climate risk. Call our listener voicemail line to leave us a message with your story and we may use it in an upcoming episode. The phone number can be found on our website climateone.org on the Contact Us page. Thanks.
0: Let's get some historical perspective on what fossil fuel companies knew about their effect on the climate. Dr. Benjamin Franta is Senior Research Fellow and Head of the Climate Litigation Lab at the Oxford Sustainable Law Program. Climate One's Ariana Brocious takes it from here.
3: Through years of research, Dr. Benjamin Franta and others have uncovered just how long fossil fuel companies have known their products could hurt the climate, and how long they avoided telling anyone about it. Franta found one key example of this from more than 60 years ago in a Delaware archive.
5: It was a speech given by Edward Teller, the famous physicist who worked on the hydrogen bomb, and he was giving a speech to an industry audience. It was um, a special conference put on by the American Petroleum Institute in 1959, and he warned them about the eventuality of global warming from fossil fuels and that, that energy supply, that fossil fuels would have to be replaced.
3: Franta says in the subsequent decades, the industry's understanding of the climate impacts of fossil fuels only continued to
5: grow. And by the early 1980s, the industry had a very sophisticated understanding of the issue. We now have internal reports from companies That's like Exxon next, climate one from continues. that time that predict very accurately how global warming would develop, many of the impacts, and also had a clear understanding that the central problem causing it was fossil fuels and that fossil fuels would need to be replaced to stop the problem from developing. Around that time, and I'm talking about the early 1980s, even the late 1970s, scientists studying this problem and companies like Exxon were aware of the fact that if climate change was going to be avoided, it was time to act then.
3: This understanding wasn't limited to U.S. companies, though some of them were leaders in hiding the facts. Instead of taking action on climate, companies did the opposite.
5: In the mid-1980s, Exxon informed many of the other oil companies about this issue and essentially raised a red flag for them and said, we're going to be regulated as an industry because of this climate problem. And we as an industry need to be prepared and have a counter response ready to deal with climate legislation and climate treaties.
3: Franta says throughout the 1980s, French company Total and others followed the strategies developed by Exxon to dispute and counter climate science.
5: These included things like emphasizing the cost of climate action and de-emphasizing the benefits of climate action and even distraction techniques, which might surprise you. Things like emphasizing the need for reforestation or efficiency. Like these are things that alone would be good, but they were deployed by the industry in order to distract attention away from fossil fuels. And they've been doing it ever since.
3: In the late 90s and early 2000s, the industry started to reposition itself as integral to solving climate change.
5: That's when the industry really began promoting things like carbon capture, things like hydrogen, and almost all hydrogen is is made from natural gas, is, is made from fossil fuel currently, at least, but basically promoting industry-friendly solutions to climate change that really, at least so far, have not really been solutions, but have continued to perpetuate the fossil fuel regime.
3: Those tactics included shifting the blame to the public by popularizing the idea of an individual carbon footprint and personal sustainability. What size is your carbon
1: footprint? Ah, the carbon footprint, there. That I don't know. Whatever it is
5: the whole population of the world, make that a very, very big number. There are ad campaigns from the early 2000s that portray climate change as the fault of individual consumers um, and encourages them to do things like carpool more or change their light bulbs and portrays the fossil fuel companies as as the leaders. And it was even worse because in reality, those fossil fuel companies were not, in fact, taking the lead to address climate change. They weren't investing substantially in renewables, for example.
3: Another frequent tactic of fossil fuel companies has been the use of so-called advertorials in major newspapers like the New York Times, often a full-page ad written in the form of an op-ed.
5: So it's made to look authoritative and, and neutral or objective, but in reality, it's paid for by, you know, in this case, a company like Exxon, And Exxon took these out, you know, for many, many years in the New York Times and used them to cast doubt on climate science, but also to convince the public that climate action would be too expensive to undertake, that it would hurt the economy. And in fact, sometimes Exxon would cite studies by economists that said this, but those economists had actually been paid to do those studies by the oil industry. So there was a lot of trickery involved. And you know these were messages seen by huge numbers of people because they're in these mainstream, incredible, authoritative newspapers like, like the New York Times. The New York Times still runs these sorts of ads for fossil fuel companies, and many of those ads still contain false and misleading statements like calling natural gas clean or exaggerating the amount of investment in renewables that the oil companies are making. And that, of course, skews all of our perceptions of what these companies are doing. And in a way, that New York Times stamp of approval on that ad it's a form of the third party technique. It's people who might not necessarily trust Exxon, but they might trust the New York Times. And so they see it in the New York Times and they believe that message.
3: These tactics, especially the economic arguments, have also been targeted at politicians, policymakers, and business leaders.
5: I saw then President Trump give his announcement to pull the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement. And to justify that, he cited an economic study paid for by the industry and written by some of the very same economists who have been doing this for the industry since the 90s and so this strategy is still going on Um, it's still affecting public policy at the highest levels and you know we need more oversight of that We, we need to know understand that whole phenomenon better you know because the future is at stake
3: In recent years, Franta says the fossil fuel industry has shifted to more greenwashing or climate washing techniques, often through social media.
1: ExxonMobil is growing algae for biofuels
5: that could one day power planes, propel ships and fuel trucks, and cut their greenhouse gas emissions in half. We see this all the time now with major oil companies ExxonMobil might be bragging about how much carbon capture it's doing. But if you actually run the numbers, it's minuscule. You know, so they they sort of specialize in giving a narrowly true fact that is presented in an overall misleading way. So it's it's sort of a sin of omission or a sin of presentation.
3: But there's growing public awareness of this greenwashing, which Franta says is one of the first steps to combating it.
5: Because if the public is aware of the trickery, then the trickery doesn't work as well. But also, this is unlawful often uh, to, to deceive the public in this way about your company or about, about your products. And so different parties can bring climate lawsuits uh, that focus on greenwashing and try to put an end to it. And... You know, we've seen some suits like this in the United States and we've seen suits like this in other countries in uh, Europe, for example, and I think we're going to see a lot of these kinds of lawsuits as companies make climate pledges, as they try to green their images, as they make net zero commitments that might not actually have anything behind them. That's going to be an important accountability mechanism to ensure that what these companies say they're doing or portraying themselves as doing that they're actually doing that and not just, not just trying to look good. So it's a very, very important legal campaign, global in scope. And the stakes are very high, of course, because it's going to, to affect the long, long-term future of the planet.
0: Dr. Benjamin Franta is head of the Climate Litigation Lab at the Oxford Sustainable Law Programme. We're talking about the firms that enable fossil fuel companies to maintain their social license to operate. I've invited a couple of guests to weigh in. Christine Arena is a former executive vice president at Edelman and founder of the production company Generous Films. And Jamie Henn is founder and director of Clean Creatives, a project for PR and ad professionals who want a safe climate future. Companies spend a lot of money on advertising and messaging in order to appear more climate conscious. ExxonMobil is one big oil company to announce that it aims to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. But Exxon's plans only cover scope 1 and scope 2 emissions, meaning it will not cover its biggest carbon impact: consumers burning the fossil fuel that it generates. Those are called scope 3 emissions. I asked Christina Arena what she thinks about the net zero pledges from fossil fuel producers
4: practically none of them, to your point, include scope three emissions. Um, They don't factor in the actual emissions generated when people use their products, Um, is a little bit deceptive. I think that at the very least, these marketers need to include the fine print so that people understand that scope one and two emissions basically mean bringing fossil fuels to market more efficiently, Um, not decarbonizing our economy, not scaling back on the emissions that scientists say we need to focus on.
0: Many large oil and gas companies say they support our price on carbon pollution, yet the House Oversight Committee reports that less than half of 1% of their lobbying effort over the past decade focused on carbon pricing. The committee also reports that from 2010 to 2018, BP spent about 2% of its capital expenditures or CapEx on low carbon investments. Exxon spent less than a quarter of 1% on cleaner energy, large oil companies are spending pennies on carbon pricing policies and low carbon energy. I've asked executives in the past to specify their CapEx on renewables, and they dance around the actual number. Jamie, what story do those numbers tell about capital expenditures and lobbying?
1: Well, I think it tells a story that big oil's supposed commitment to climate action is little more than greenwashing. ExxonMobil just made record profits uh, because of high gas prices. And what are they doing with it? They are telling their shareholders that they are going to increase oil and gas production, and they're doing a $10 billion stock buyback to reward their shareholders. Uh, in comparison, ExxonMobil has spent you know, maybe upwards of about $300 million on algae research, which over the last 10 years, so that's about you know, thirty million a year, maybe. Yet, that's the focus of all of their advertising. is all about how they're making fuel out of algae uh, and things like that. So, again, when you actually peel back uh, the glossy advertisements and messaging from the industry, the real numbers show that um, practically they're spending more on burnishing their image than they actually are changing their business plans.
0: Christine, there's a line from a Guardian article about this that stands out. It says, quote, oil companies almost never advertise their products, opting instead to advertise ideas, particularly the idea that they're working hard to address the climate crisis, end quote. Give us a sense of how PR firms work with fossil fuel clients on messaging and the relationship of their product versus making people feel they're on the same side
4: fossil fuel marketers are basically bombarding us with their messages, doing very aggressive media buys across channels, right? So if you have logged into Twitter, Facebook, the New York Times, Politico, or listened to a a podcast recently, chances are you've probably heard of fossil fuel ad. Um, and, And really, if you look at the nature of those very, very pervasive ad messages, you're right. They're not really selling us products, they're advertising ideas. They're advertising ideas that they're far more socially and environmentally responsible than they are in reality, Um, ideas that we can't live without them, that it's dangerous to imagine a future free from fossil fuels, Um, and ideas that just generally confuse people about climate change and what the real solutions are. So I think this is a very dangerous mix, this mix of misleading messages from fossil fuel marketers amplified, so aggressively across media channels. This is a systemic issue. And it's an issue that is a serious problem because fossil fuel marketers aren't restricted the same way tobacco or opioid marketers are. And they're spending vast resources. So their agency partners are turning around and creating these Messages and plat- programs, and social and ad platforms are themselves not incentivized to police misinformation or police the problem. So this is a systemic issue. And to your question, you know, what is that role that that PR partners play? Well, you know, they're, they basically take the client's money and execute um, messaging that fits the objective of that client. The objective of most fossil fuel ads is, you know, to do one of two things. Either, you know, um, it's not to transition us away from clean energy anytime soon. The agenda and the messaging is designed to keep the demand for fossil fuel products up and to avoid regulatory intervention. And that's why they're trying so hard to influence public opinion and reaching out so aggressively.
0: And so, what is the possible avenue for regulatory intervention? We obviously we have, you know, First Amendment, et cetera, uh, regulating free speech, very contentious. Is there a path for oversight by a government entity?
4: There is, and if you look at uh, opioids or tobacco, they provide models. Um, you know, fossil fuel products kill 8.7 million people a year through pollution. If you compare those numbers to fatalities in tobacco, you know, tobacco products kill about 480,000 people a year. Opioids, I think deaths from opioids are at about 70,000 a year. So why aren't fossil fuel marketers restricted in the same way that tobacco marketers are? There are clearly mechanisms for this level of intervention. It just hasn't happened yet. And that is partly thanks to the power of the fossil fuel lobby.
0: Jamie, you lead Clean Creatives, a campaign pressuring public relations and advertising agencies to quit working with fossil fuel companies to spread climate disinformation. In January, your group joined with more than 450 scientists who signed a letter calling on advertising and PR agencies to drop their fossil fuel clients. What was the impact and what are you trying to achieve?
1: Well, I think the impact of that letter... Really showed that this is a topic that PR and advertising agencies can no longer avoid. Um, You know, I think the role of PR and advertising in blocking climate action has been hiding in plain sight uh, for years because it's the water we swim in every day, it's the messages and the advertisements that create the reality and the very language that we use to talk about the climate crisis. Um, And as we've seen over the last few decades, uh, these industries have played a huge role in blocking the type of conversation that we need to have about climate climate change, and then the type of political action that could result from that. So about a year ago, uh, my colleague and friend Duncan Meisel and I were looking out there and actually seeing all of this advertising out there that was flowing um, during the uh, 2020 election um, and feeling like there had to be a way that we could begin to try and uh, dismantle or at the very least throw a wrench into the gears of this propaganda machine. And so we launched Clean Creatives as an effort to really go after the PR and ad agencies that work most closely with the fossil fuel industry. The idea being that ExxonMobil, you know, their business plan really depends on selling oil, but a firm like Edelman or WPP, they can make money doing all sorts of things. They could work with sustainability-oriented clients. They could work with really big companies like GM, uh, which you know doesn't have a perfect track record, but is making the transition to electric vehicles and trying to move into this clean energy economy. So the idea was that these were really essential agencies that were a part of the way the fossil fuel industry blocked progress, but they were also movable targets who we could really bring on to the right side of this issue and tap into the incredible talent that exists in the creative sector. And instead of using that to destroy creation, try and get those creatives to actually help address the climate crisis.
0: You're listening to a conversation about those who work behind the scenes to enable fossil fuel companies. We value you as a listener, and your rating or review of our show helps others find our podcast and learn more about the climate emergency. Please take a moment to rate or review us on your pod app. Coming up, how can clean tech change the narrative fossil fuel companies have worked so hard to create?
4: People are losing faith in fossil fuel companies. That opens the door for clean tech marketers and clean energy marketers to come in with a more compelling narrative. Tell your story better. Be more creative. Capture America's hearts and minds.
0: We'll be right back.
3: Hey, Climate One fans, we have some exciting news. We are now on Patreon.
0: In late 2022, PR firm Edelman released a global survey finding that business does have a trust problem on sustainability. The survey of 14,000 people found that national governments have a stunning 22-point advantage over business when it comes to which institutions people think should lead on climate change. That report was issued after we recorded our conversation with Jamie Henn, founder of the Clean Creatives Campaign, and Christine Arena, former executive vice president at Edelman. We spoke shortly after reporting from the New York Times revealed that Edelman's CEO told the staff the company would not walk away from fossil fuel clients who need its services as they transition to clean energy. I asked Christine Arena how much this kind of outside pressure has shifted Edelman's business model.
4: Well, I didn't expect Edelman to walk away from very lucrative client contracts. I mean, we know that between 2008 and 2018, Edelman did about a half a billion dollars with worth of work for that's just trade associations, fossil fuel trade associations, including the American Petroleum Institute, the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers, National Mining Association, and others. So Edelman has different practices, and the energy practice is extremely lucrative. So I don't expect them to divest, but what I do expect is for them to continue to be a primary target for lawmakers, and that's not just because of activist campaigns or my personal experience, but it's because there is real evidence showing how PR firms have played that central role in promoting uh, misinformation on behalf of fossil fuel clients. I do suspect that that the focus and scrutiny on this industry will will increase, not decrease. I am concerned that um, the industry is just really unwilling to acknowledge the core problem of misleading communications. PR firms just haven't wanted to talk about this, despite the fact that there's an ongoing congressional investigation into climate disinformation. There are 13 active AG, state AG lawsuits that center on that basis of, of misleading communications and advertising. So I just think this is a conversation the industry needs to have much more openly and it needs to take actions to stop damaging uh, potentially communities through misleading marketing communications.
0: We invited Edelman to join this discussion and they declined. Our invitation is still open and hope they'll come on. Jamie, Chevron is hiring journalists to work in a internal, quote, newsroom to cover stories it doesn't think mainstream outlets will write about, isn't it possible that oil companies can just bring these functions in-house and they may not need ad agencies or PR shops?
1: Well, I think you are seeing that uh, from a variety of different fossil fuel companies. It's a real concern. Um, and obviously, Chevron's been engaged in a fight for years over in Richmond, California, um, which is the largest point source. Their refinery there is the largest point source of pollution in the entire state of California and had a devastating impact on the local community with their air pollution. And yeah, Chevron started not only hired its own journalists, they started their entire own newspaper uh, to try and put out their own spin on the news uh, about local issues in Richmond. Um And of course, accompanied that with a major political campaign to try and take over the Richmond City Council. I think thanks to the work of grassroots communities there, uh, activists and community members were really able to push back on that. And that is where the hope lies. And I think people are a little bit sharper consumers these days. And when they see stuff that looks so clearly like propaganda, they're able to push back on that. I think the bigger risk is when actually a fossil fuel company isn't putting forward outright climate denial, but they're actually talking about solutions um, when they pretend to be our friend. Um, That's the harder stuff to really cut through, but ultimately it's just as damaging because the goal of that content is to delay the type of public outrage and ultimately political pressure that could cause these companies to really change. And so in some ways I'm less worried about Chevron uh, coming out there and really pushing back on regulations. I'm more worried about them pretending that they're big fans of climate action when in fact they're lobbying behind the scenes um, to block regulations everywhere from the local level all the way up to the international.
0: Yeah. These days, everyone agrees on decarbonization and net zero. This, it's a, the debate's really about how fast, it's, whether it take decades or <laughs> centuries or, or happen on the timeline that science wants.
1: Well and I think I think that's really critical because we've we've had the conversation with a lot of advertisers who we've talked to about signing our pledge and they say hold on a second you know we're working with BP or Shell all about their climate solutions and how much they care about the issue so we're helping we're helping the transition happen by putting out advertising from BP about how committed they are to climate action. And I think the thing to understand is that that is exactly the tactics that an industry under pressure would do, right? You know, they want to act as if they're solving the problem. They want to pretend as if they're making progress so that they won't face the type of pressure and regulations that would cause them to really change. And so that advertising that's, quote unquote, helping is actually even more damaging. And I think that that's hard for people to hear because it is a beautiful ad about how committed BP is to climate action. But when only a few percentage points of their capital expenditures are going to clean energy and the rest is being poured into fossil fuels, that ultimately is false advertising. And it should be called out as such and ultimately regulated as such.
0: Let's look to the other side, Christine. The, the clean energy sector is growing quickly, but it's a small amount, and it's fragmented compared to fossil fuels. They don't spend as much on advertising. They don't have the mega national consumer brands that happen that we know from the oil companies, although car companies are starting to advertise EVs more. you know, Look at that side of it. Is there, where's the power and the brand power and spending power on the clean side? Because ultimately, these firms will move when there's money to be made by these other clients.
4: Well, yes, I mean, you know, look, the fossil fuel industry is unique in that they have an exorbitant amount of money to spend. It's just a huge industry, and it clean tech marketers can't match that scale at this level, but what they can do is uh, command the narrative. Uh, fossil fuel marketers. Even though their messages are so pervasive, even though they're so aggressive about telling their story and trying to position themselves as part of the solution, uh, people are losing faith in fossil fuel companies. Uh, We have about sixty percent of Americans right now saying that fossil fuel, believing that fossil fuel companies are to blame for the climate crisis, and about fifty percent of them want them to pay damages. Um, And that's now. I think that's only going to increase. So this industry is kind of losing control of the narrative, even though it is trying so hard to direct it. Um, And so I think that opens the door for clean tech marketers and clean energy marketers to come in with a more compelling narrative. Tell your story better. Be more creative. Capture America's hearts and minds. I think that's the open opportunity. Um, you can't go up against Goliath and beat Goliath on, you know, muscle because we can't outspend Goliath, but we can certainly outtalk him.
0: Jamie, how do you see the power dynamics there of this sort of less mature, more fragmented, less wealthy clean energy sector compared to these fossil giants who've been around and had 100 years to accumulate power and brand?
1: Well, I think Christine put it exactly right. I mean, there's no doubt that right now, the oil and gas sector is dramatically outspending clean energy when it comes to PR and advertising. Um, We did a report to launch the Clean Creatives campaign that looked at some data that we had available. And this was between 2014 and 2018, which there's a lag time because it's hard to get this information from advertisers at certain points. But during that period, what we could find suggested that uh, the fossil fuel industry had spent over a billion Dollars over the course of just five years to influence public opinion on these issues. Um, And that outweighed clean energy by a factor of 400 to 1. So there's just no competition between the two. That said, I think Christine's exactly right that this is changing. And there's a few reasons why. One, Everybody knows that this is where the future is headed. And if advertising and PR is about anything, it's about trends, it's about predicting the market, driving the market, and everybody's clear that the market is moving away from fossil fuels to clean energy. Um, Second, those are the companies that people want to work with. If you go to the main PR and advertising agencies around the country and around the world, hardly any of them put their fossil fuel clients on their website. And if you're not proud enough to put your client on the website, maybe you shouldn't be working with them. Um, This isn't work that people are happy about or proud about or that is attracting talent and winning awards. It's kind of the dirty secret that maybe keeps the lights on. So that's saying something about where the industry is going. And finally, it's not just clean energy companies that are part of this new economy or have something at stake in this conversation. It's also huge consumer-facing brands that are trying to convince their consumers that they're committed to sustainability and want to be part of a more sustainable economy. So if I'm a brand like Unilever, and I'm trying to convince my consumers that I care about the climate, I care about the environment, do I really want to work with an advertising agency that is also working with ExxonMobil? to block climate action, to put out propaganda about my product, that just increases the type of distrust that is destructive to brands. And so I think that conversation is one that we're really trying to have with major companies that might not be involved in clean energy, but do have a stake in this conversation to say, hey, just like you take a really close look at your supply chain to figure out whether or not the products you're sourcing are sustainable. Take a close look at your advertising firm and ask them if they're working with clients that are really um, aren't aligned with the mission and the values that you're trying to put out there in the world. And I think that's beginning to happen. I think, again, this has been a sort of you know sector that's avoided the type of scrutiny, um, perhaps not surprisingly, because they're very good <laughs> at shaping public narrative. Um, but it's something that's beginning to really take effect. And I think a conversation that's only going to expand in the years to come.
0: So as we as we wrap up, what's the next chapter in this, Christine? What do you, what do you think the next turn will be that you're looking for or trying to make happen?
4: The next term is I think, you know, accountability. Um, I think we're seeing a wave of accountability journalism. I think we're going to probably see some PR firms and executives specifically called as witnesses to Testify at the uh, oversight, the House hearings on climate disinformation. I also think that we'll probably see a lot of activity on the state level. Um, Those lawsuits, the state AG lawsuits filed against oil firms for their deceptive advertising, I think that we'll see some of the marketing partners named as defendants in some of those suits. And I think we're going to continue to see this wave of public interest um, and curiosity about this issue because climate change. Is something that everyone listening and everyone in the world um, is experiencing on some level.
0: Jamie Martin Sorrell is one of the gods of the advertising industry. He's made some moves recently. What does that tell you about the way the winds are blowing in PR and marketing?
1: Well, I think it's a good sign. And and for those who don't know, uh, Martin Sorrell is the one of the. Early kind of leaders and founders of WPP, which has emerged as one of the largest advertising firms in the world, and he's now started a new company. And uh, one of the first steps he took was to sign the Amazon Climate Pledge and say that his agency was really going to focus on this. Um, Since then, the details have been a little scant about what exactly that means. So there's some accountability work that needs to be done there. But the point is that this is clearly where the market is headed. You are not going to be an advertising agency in 2030, and not have a position on climate change. There is a parallel with big tobacco here, however imperfect. And I think people need to look at themselves and ask, would I have been proud of working for Philip Morris to block action to address cancer from cigarettes? You know, Would I wanted to have been on the account that put out the lies about that? Um, And if the answer is no, then you better ask some serious questions about the work you're doing for the fossil fuel industry right now. Because the level of anger that people feel towards those companies today is only going to magnify as the impacts of climate change become more clear. We need those creative minds um, working for uh, the good guys instead of putting out propaganda for Exxon.
0: Thank you so much for coming
4: on Climate One. Thank you. Thanks for having us.
0: Lastly, it's fair to admit that these issues are complicated and changing. Years ago, Climate One did accept funding from major oil companies. We no longer do. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be hard, difficult, sometimes depressing, and it's critical to address the climate emergency. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Our producers and audio editors are Ariana Brocious and Austin Cologne. Megan Basilia is our production manager. Our team also includes consulting producer Sarah Catherine Coxon. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.